You know, the, the part of scripture we need to hear is the part we're not listening to. This is in that, that category. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning into the 83rd episode of Working with the Word. We're excited about this interview today we have with Sid Latham. We sat down with him and talked to him about a difficult passage that was requested for us to cover in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 about the temple. So we're going to talk to Sid about not only this passage, but also the theme of the temple and its applications throughout the Bible. We hope that you enjoy Well, welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Emerson, and with me is my co-host, Jeff. We also have with us today a special guest, Sid Latham. Sid was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. He has been a Christian for 32 years, married to Kim for 29 years, and he's also been preaching for 29 years. I have to say, poor Kim. (laughs) (laughs) They have three children. Two of them are in their 20s, one teen at home. Sid has preached in Kentucky, Mississippi, Indiana, and is now in Lexington, Kentucky at the East End Church. Sid, thank you for joining us today. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're here talking today with you about Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 and kind of more broadly the the theme of the temple in the Bible. And we're bringing this up because a while ago we received a difficult passage request from a listener of ours to do an episode about the temple imagery in Ezekiel 40 to 48. And so we want to talk with you about that, get your thoughts on how we can understand that passage in the context of the book of Ezekiel. But also along the way, we'd like to use this as an example of how to see and appreciate theme connections throughout the Bible. And so we're really talking about two things, but are they're interconnected with each other. So I guess we want to think about the fact that the Bible is one big story. We probably have lots of different ways we say that, whether it's talking about all the different authors over the long period in the different continents and telling the one story about Jesus, or one phrase that's been popular is one unified story that's leading to Jesus. But within that story, there's a varying amount of themes or a varying kind of themes that might go through kind of the whole end of scripture, thinking about the unfolding of God's plan and different things that we see. So just thinking about how we might identify or think about certain themes in scripture just briefly as much as we can maybe think about a couple examples of that just kind of a surface level approach about some of those themes that we might think of as being themes through the whole bible right so you know just and a really obvious example is creation that runs all the way through scripture so you look at genesis 1:1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and you get to Revelation 21.1, and there's a new heaven and a new earth, obviously a new creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that comes up in a, a spiritual sense with us being new creatures in Christ. You see it in God unmaking creation and the flood. It just mm-hmm. it comes up throughout Scripture. I think one of the key things, if we're going to see these themes like creation or the kingdom or the priesthood or the temple, we're going to see these themes. It's key that we are reading all the way through God's word repeatedly on a regular basis 
so that mm -hmm. we can make these connections. I think that's probably the most important thing. I mean, there are plenty of guys out there who will enumerate the themes and tell you what they think they are. But if you're not seeing it for yourself, then you're not seeing it. I think that's really helpful to, to think about the fact that one reason that we would continue to look at whether it be kind of that through the Bible in a year or just kind of regular readings of God's word is to see those things. And we might notice something about creation there in Genesis one. And if it's just Genesis one, and then a, a little bit of Psalm 23, and then a little bit of the Sermon on the mountain, a little bit of John three kind of jumping around like that, we probably won't notice themes appropriately right. along the way. So it, it makes sense that we would want to, be familiar with the whole story in order to appropriately talk about stuff like what it means to be part of a priesthood or to see that creation type of language that's being brought up. So we want to identify those themes, but we always want to make sure we do that in context is I think important point there. Right. So one of the major themes of scripture, and I don't think I had really appreciated this until maybe the last couple of years is that the temple is a theme that runs from the beginning to the end, quite literally. And so we're kind of honing in on that. First of all, when we think about a temple, what should we think about? What does that mean? What does it represent in scripture? Well, I think at a fundamental level, the temple is about the presence of God and the presence of God in the midst of his people. So in Exodus 25, 8, God says through Moses, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. It's more complicated than that. Because, you know, one of the points that Solomon makes is he's building the temple in 1 Kings 8, 27 and following. He says, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. And so when God condescends to dwell in our midst, he's not then constrained by time and space. He's still transcendent and eternal and holy. And so we mustn't think that he's somehow located. So the temple is not about location when we think about dwelling, but it's about relationship and a mm -hmm. sustained relationship. But that too has complexities because God is holy and we're not. Yeah. And so that it always sort of exists in tension of God's, God's presence, at least the other side of the cross, that's certainly true. The cross transforms things in so many ways. But fundamentally, it's about God sustaining a relationship in the midst of his people. He is there with them. He is there for them. Uh, and he is there to transform them. I think it's helpful to think about a distinction between like the pagan temples and God's temple, tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament. In Acts 17, Paul makes that point that God doesn't dwell in houses made with hands because God transcends that. But yet Jesus has come down and he is the temple and he dwells among us in that way. Right. And so, yeah, right. a lot of times when we think about a temple, we think about like a, a pagan, for lack of a better way, or an idolatrous temple. But this is very different. Yes. And we're going to see that sort of as the temple theme develops, it's only sort of briefly represented in a physical manner. And then it, it, it fairly quickly transitions to something that's, that's spiritual. I think I know the answer to this question, but thinking about 
you know, the temple, as we probably think about the, the thing that Solomon built in First Kings 8, or we might even think about the tabernacle before that. The tabernacle isn't necessarily the first time we would see that temple theme, though, right? No, it's not. And so the temple sort of develops in stages. And I, I really think the garden is the first time we see the temple. I, I think it's at least accommodatively accurate to say the garden is a temple. I think the if we if we want to be technically correct, we would have to say the temple is a garden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And not not the garden is a temple, right? Because right. the temple is derived from an earlier, purer, fuller form of God's God's presence. But we see all kinds of things in the garden that are temple-like and, and vice versa. So in Genesis 3 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The garden was the place of God's presence. We see the eastward orientation of the garden in Genesis 3.24, just like the, the tabernacle and later the temple had an eastward orientation. You see that in Exodus 27.13-15, through 15, that the tabernacle faces east. God planted the garden to the east. There are cherubim guarding the way into the presence of God in Genesis 3.24. It says he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And then there are cherubim woven into the fabric of the veil that is between the holy place and the holy of holies and, and the Ark of the Covenant, which is the the throne of God, if you will. God is described in Psalm 80 as the God who dwells above the cherubim. And so, you know, there's all kinds of language there that suggests that Adam is a priest. There's also a lot of garden imagery in the temple. In fact, there's a ton of garden imagery in the temple vision. So one of the things we see very prominently early on is palm trees and cherubim carved on everything in Ezekiel's temple, and that was true in Solomon's temple as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the lampstand is a tree. It has branches and blossoms, and so it, it's figured like a tree. And, and so the garden is a temple. Obviously, the, the tabernacle and the temple are a temple. I don't, I don't <laughs> think you have to make that case, but again, <laughs> Exodus 25, 8, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. The church is a temple. Yeah. And that's that's clearly stated in First Corinthians three sixteen. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Or if we're going to be grammatically correct, Paul is saying, Do you not know that y'all are a temple of God and, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? It's it's a it's a second person plural pronoun. And mm -hmm. those of us who live on the right side of the Mason Dixon line know that that's y'all and not these guys uh, and then uh in paul in ephesians 2 19 through 22 he says you are no longer strangers and aliens but your fellow citizens with the saints and are of god's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building 
being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Of course, in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul describes God's household as the church of God. And so the church is a temple. It's a dwelling place for God. And there are all kinds of practical applications that are made in the New Testament. And we maybe touch on some of those later that yeah. they grow out of that. And then finally, heaven is a temple, right? So in Revelation 21, 10 and 11, the, the new heaven and earth, which is a city and which is the bride of Christ, is described as having the glory of God. And then it's also described as a cube which is really interesting because the only thing that I know of that's cube shaped in, in scripture is the Holy of Holies. If you look at first Kings eight and the description of Solomon's temple, the Holy of Holies is 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. And, and so heaven is described as this giant Holy of Holies that is suffused with the glory of God. Every Everyone and everything is in the direct presence of God, which is an amazing, amazing thought. And so there's all kinds of temple imagery. There's a river flowing from the throne of God in Ezekiel or in uh, Revelation 22. And so just a lot of connections there. And so the temple theme goes from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between. Right. And like you kind of hinted at, and like, I guess we've talked about one of our Places we want to focus on today is there in Ezekiel, you know, like you talked about a moment ago, we're going to see some of that river stuff. We're going to see this vision of a temple or something going on with the temple here. It's kind of moving our minds toward Ezekiel 40 through Ezekiel 48. One to just think about kind of what's going on in this text. That's a very broad question. But I guess before we do that, just kind of a rapid fire, get us to speed. Uh, where are we in Israel's history and maybe why this temple vision is so significant in Ezekiel 40? Right. So Ezekiel is carried away into captivity as a young man who is preparing to become a priest. He's carried away in, in 597. And in about 592, 593, uh, he is called by God to prophesy. And so the first half of Ezekiel's book, Ezekiel 1 through 24, is leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. And it's it's primarily judgment. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that happens in those judgment oracles is Ezekiel is snatched up by the hair and he is set down in the temple in Jerusalem in a vision. And so in some ways it's the second temple vision, but it's the, we'll say the first temple vision. And what he sees is he sees all of this idolatry. And there's a, a really important statement made in Ezekiel chapter eight and verse six. He says, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations, which the house of Israel are committing here, so that I would be far from my sanctuary. And so the temple was intended, we would say, as a single occupancy dwelling. It is meant for God and God alone. And they filled it with idols. And God says, I'm leaving. 
And, and what happens in Ezekiel 10 and 11 is he does leave in stages. The glory of the Lord mounts the, the chariot that we saw in Ezekiel 1 through 3, and mm -hmm. he, he leaves to the east. He goes off to the east in Ezekiel 10 and 11 uh, in, in stages, uh, and he's left his people. He's left the temple. God is not there anymore. And so that is the crisis of the book. And so Ezekiel 40 through 48, the temple vision, one of the really important things we see in chapter 43 is that God comes back. Right? Yeah. We'll look at that in just a moment. And so it is the resolution to the crisis in the book. Hmm. Uh, and God, God has left his people. He no longer dwells in their midst because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion. And it's not, they didn't, they didn't sin once or twice. They have been rebelling against God since they left Egypt. And they have seldom even slowed down. And so it's finally gotten uh, to the breaking point. Mm -hmm. But the amazing thing is that, you know, even before God left, he's already talking about coming back. Which is an incredible statement of his patience and his grace and his mercy and his his faithful love and so ezekiel is a tough book to read in some ways because it's a really bad situation but in other ways it's tremendously tremendously encouraging the second there are some nation judgments which begin to offer comfort to god's people and then in ezekiel 33 ezekiel's recommissioned and he begins with a series of messages that provide hope. And then in 35, it talks about putting down Mount Seir, putting down their enemies, vindicating Israel, and raising up the mountain of the Lord. In Ezekiel 37, there is a picture of God bringing Israel back from the dead, resurrecting them, giving them new life. Again, pointing toward what is going to be realized through Jesus Christ. And not, not only giving them life, but peace. And then in 38 and 39, there's this impossibly large enemy that comes against God's people. And there's no battle. God just does away with them. And so he restores his rule. He restores peace. He vindicates them. He defeats their enemies. And the, the climax of all of this is the temple vision where God is going to dwell in their midst and restore them. And so it's, it's a beautiful picture. And the tragedy of, of this is that Ezekiel 40 through 48 seems to be sort of the purview of quacks and nutcases, and it's often avoided <laughs> by serious Bible students. So, I mean, obviously, premillennialists make a lot out of hmm. Ezekiel 40 through 48, and then Guys like Eric Von Donegan get hold of this stuff and they see UFOs and, you know, all kinds of really ridiculous stuff. But there's an important message here and a relevant message for, for Christians. And, you know, the, the part of Scripture we need to hear is the part we're not listening to. Mm. This is in that, that category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's not something that should be neglected. So I just recently finished teaching a class on apologetics. And one of the things that 
uh, we talked about was the Old Testament books of the Bible and how some of them were kind of questioned as far as should they be included in the canon. And Ezekiel was one of those questioned books because of the temple vision and how the temple vision, the measurements of the temple didn't match with anything that was being built. And so they're like, well, this, this doesn't match. There's a contradiction in God's plan. But I don't think it's intended to be taken. All these measurements are not intended to be taken as a blueprint for a physical building. Right. So one of the interesting things is there are some parallels, certainly, between the tabernacle instructions in Exodus and the temple vision in Ezekiel. But one of the things you don't you don't see any building materials. Those aren't given. And Ezekiel doesn't go. He's not shown a plan. He's shown a temple. Mm -hmm. the, the temple is an accomplished fact. And I think the point of that is this is a temple that God has built. It's not, it's not something we're going to build. It's a temple that God builds. Mm -hmm. It is of his construction. And the, the structure of the temple has all kinds of significance, which we can touch on a little bit. But it's not. it was never intended to be building plans that's not what we're seeing here yeah do you want to talk a little bit about some of those particulars because i think that's really where we kind of get bogged down is the numbers and i mean as you're trying to move from room to room in this virtual tour it just it's hard to visualize as you go from compartment to compartment it's just really difficult to read through it so can you can you help us help us out there yeah so there, there are a couple of things, and I, I listen, I don't claim to know the significance of every detail in this vision by a long shot, but I, I think there are some things that we see. You know, anytime you measure something, you're setting it apart for a purpose, right? And so just the measurements themselves are sort of setting apart this area. So I think a lot of this is about holiness. And one of the things that you see as you move into the temple, you're always moving up as you draw closer and closer to where God dwells, which is not, you know, the whole thing ends up being on top of a mountain. None of that is accidental. It's all making a point about, it's a physical way of talking about the exalted nature of God and, and the holiness of God. and so. We, we see that as we move in. And that Ezekiel 40 through 42 is the tough part to kind of get through because mm -hmm. of all the measurements and Ezekiel being led around and shown all of this stuff. But I, I think we get some help in what follows when God returns in Ezekiel 43 and 44. And there are a couple of things that I think are really important in this next section that kind of clarify some of this. So in Ezekiel 43, 4, the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And so this is really big. This is big news for Israel because God is back. Right. So the the, the declaration here in, in the book of Ezekiel is that God is going to restore his presence in your midst. The relationship is going to be healed. And so what they've lost in pictured in Ezekiel 8 through 11, they're going to get back in a, in a much grander way. This thing 
as great as Solomon's Temple was, this is this is next level in, in mm-hmm. a big way. And then he says something really interesting in Ezekiel 43, 7 and 8. He says, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by their corpses of their kings when they die, by setting their threshold by my threshold, and their doorpost by my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations, which they have committed. So I've consumed them in my anger. And so God makes a point that this temple is going to reestablish the people's understanding of God's holiness. Just a couple of verses later, he says, As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel so that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, let them measure the plan. Okay, and so the measurements were meant to impress upon them the holy nature of God and and their own unworthiness, right? God is, is exalted. But there's a really interesting statement made here. It's it's one of those little things that this culture desperately needs to hear. He says, and the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their harlotry, by the corpses of their kings when they die, by setting their threshold by my threshold. Now, that's an interesting statement because Solomon builds the temple and then he builds his palace right next door. And God is effectively saying, listen, you are not my next door neighbor. That's not how this works. And what we see in this in this new economy, if you will, is we see the temple up high on the mountain and the prince way down the mountain. There's a there's a separation that's reestablished. And God is not our buddy. He's not our neighbor. He is holy. And yes, he loves us. Yes, he's merciful. Yes, he's kind. But reverence is something that I think has largely been lost in the culture. Hmm. And that, that, that reverential awe that we need to have, that God is absolute other. And we, don't, we, we can't treat God as an equal. That is a huge mistake. And Israel made that mistake, and it was their downfall. And part of the purpose of this vision is to re-impress them with the holiness of God. And part of the purpose of this vision for us is to impress us with the holiness of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's a, a lot that goes on in, say, contemporary worship that I think is almost designed to undermine that view of God. Yeah. Uh, as a nation, we're very sort of egalitarian. You know, we don't we don't really do kings, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis said bad politics makes for bad theology. And he was talking about us when he said it. He was looking across <laughs> the pond when he said it. He wasn't thinking about the British. He was thinking yeah. about Americans. And I, I think to some degree that's true. And that's not a political statement. I'm not saying we ought to, you know, elect right. a king or whatever. <laughs> but I think we need to recognize that God is not like us. Yeah. Uh, and 
maybe more importantly, we're not like God. And so this, this vision impresses that upon us. Another thing that I find is really interesting is some of the statements that are made about Zadok and his sons. Of course, Zadok was the priest during the time of David. Mm -hmm. And his sons were faithful to the Lord. And that comes up again and again in 44, Ezekiel 44, 15. Uh, it says, the Levitical priest, the sons of Zadok, who keep charge of my sanctuary, when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me. And they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord. And if we drop down to verse 23, it says, Moreover, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. And then later in chapter 48, 11, almost at the end of this, he brings this idea up again when he says, uh, it shall be for the priests who are sanctified of the sons of Zadok, who have kept my charge, who did not go astray when the sons of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. And so God has remembered this small group of priests, this one family that stayed faithful the whole time. And, and they're, they're honored by him. I think, again, there's another important practical lesson in this. If we're going to attempt to be holy as the Lord is holy, which is exactly what we're called to, whether you're looking at, at Leviticus or you're looking at 1 Peter 1.16, we're going to have to not only be different than the world, it may require us to be different than the religious people around us. It certainly did in the case of the Zedekites. Mm -hmm. And there aren't very many families that maintained intergenerational faithfulness. I can think of two the Rechabites and the Zedekites, and, yeah. and none others come to mind, which, I mean, as parents, that ought to scare the living daylights out of us. But we need to teach our children that you're different than the world, and the sooner you learn that, the better off you're going to be. Amen. Uh, and so this is not, you know, up here theology. This is the practical nuts and bolts of what it means to serve God. So we see that in 43 and 44, 45 and, and 46, the temple is separated and the responsibility of the prince is given. That, and that's really interesting because essentially his responsibility is to lead the people in glorifying God. You want to know what leadership is? Leadership is pointing people toward God. That's what leadership is. And again, that, I, you know, I can't think of anything more practical than that. Mm -hmm. And these are, these are sort of big picture things. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the problems with we have as, as Westerners with visions is we get lost in the details. We spend all our time looking at brushstrokes and we never see the picture. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge mistake. There's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with looking at brushstrokes, but only after you've seen the picture. And I think we, we probably, we, we don't have enough time for brush strokes today. And <laughs> I don't have the expertise either. So we don't, Here, we don't have to worry about that. Here, here's one of those uh, maybe brush strokes that I've, I've wondered about before uh, in the temple. And, and there's probably a practical application from this. 
but you've got the trickle of water that comes like from the threshold. And then it, as it continues to flow, it gets to like a little stream and then like a, like a creek and it gets deeper and deeper until you can't, it's so deep you can't even cross it. What, how does that factor into the vision? Okay. That, that is a beautiful picture that comes from Ezekiel 47. It's again, a, it's a nod to the garden, right? Yeah. So a river flows out and divides. And one of the things that we see this river doing is we see it purifying and bringing life. And I think there are a couple of things. It starts out as a trickle. And without, without a, other tributaries flowing into it, it becomes deeper. That's not natural. Yeah. Right. That's not how rivers work. Mm -hmm. So this is clearly divine activity, supernatural. And what it does is it gives life. And the interesting thing is the further away you are from the throne of God, the more there is, which is just exactly like grace. That is that is the picture is it is a picture of the life giving grace of God that flows out and amply supplies life to all who would come. And again, it, it goes back to goes back to the garden. That's been God's intent from the very beginning. But it just it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. That's who God is and that's what he does. And that's what's ultimately realized in Jesus Christ. Yeah. But it, it flows from the throne of God. I could sit here and listen to, you know, I'm interested to get more into some of those brush jokes, but I'm also trying to think about how maybe we can save some excitement for our own audience. Let them get into some of those brush jokes. Maybe I think you even mentioned this earlier, the fact that maybe, you know, a temple vision, this isn't just a temple. It's kind of like a new temple. This isn't just going back to Solomon thinking about how that theme then continues. We're moving, trying to move towards the new Testament now, getting some application with that theme. And then maybe, you, you made some great application along the way, but if there's anything else we want to take about that from Ezekiel 40, we can talk about that too. But this new temple in the New Testament, particularly, how is that fulfilled in Jesus and the church? And uh, how can we see some of that brought up? You, you mentioned a couple of temple passages already. Maybe we can talk about that a bit more. Yeah. So I want to notice one other thing in Ezekiel, because I think it's really important. And this is just a good, a good thing to do. Often, the last thing somebody says is really important. And the last thing Ezekiel says is, the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. That's huge. So as we, as we move into the New Testament, what we find is that Jesus is the temple, right? And John really picks up on that. He, he describes Jesus in John 1 as the Word. And he says the Word became flesh and he, he dwelt among us. And literally, he tabernacled among us. Right. That's not an accidental word choice on John's part. Because he's going he's gonna to go on to develop that in John chapter 2 in verse, uh, in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. That statement has huge implications in the New Testament. 
first of all, Jesus is at this particular point the embodiment of the presence of God. He is he is Emmanuel. Right. He is God with us. But his body is also the church. The church is the body of Christ. And so if the body of Christ is the temple and the church is the body of Christ, then the church is a temple. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. But that's what we would expect to see. That's why these, these themes are important to recognize because they're, they're vehicles for, for thoughts and they're, they become categories in which we, in which we think. And we're, we're going we're gonna to put everything we read in a category anyway, right? So we either bring extra biblical categories to the table, in which case we miss it, we get it wrong, or we bring biblical categories to the table. Somebody told a story about a guy who was handing out New Testaments on a campus, and uh, he gave one to a young lady, and he said, now I want you to read it. And she said, okay, I will. And he ran into her a couple months later and said, did you read that? And she said, yeah, it was interesting. The first part was kind of repetitive, but that science fiction part at the end was really fascinating. <laughs> and so, you know, that was the only category she had to put Revelation in. And so that's mm-hmm. what, what she did with it. Obviously, that's not right. But when we develop, when we begin to recognize these themes, then we begin to have the right, we see things through the proper lenses let's say. So Jesus is the temple. Then what happens is when Jesus ascends to the throne, he also carries the sacrifice himself into the presence of God. Because it says in John, the spirit can't come unless I go. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that mean? It's not like they can't be in the same place at the same time, right? I mean, they were, they're, they're all kind of there at his baptism. So that's not but God can't dwell among an unclean people. And so he carries the blood of the lamb, his own blood, into the presence of God. And then God pours out his spirit on the temple. His glory fills the house. That's the language that is used in Exodus 40, 32 and following, and Leviticus 9 and 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 7. The glory of the Lord fills the house. And then in Acts chapter 2, what do we get? We get the sound of a mighty rushing wind filling the house. Luke is not, that, that's not random language, right? And so God puts his presence in the person of the Holy Spirit into the new temple. Mm-hmm. Acts 2 is a temple inauguration scene, I believe. And that's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you're the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? Mm-hmm. That, that's exactly what they should have come to expect from all the promises like Joel 2, where God says he's going to restore his presence in the, in the temple. And Isaiah 63 makes the point that God put his spirit in the midst of his people in the wilderness in Isaiah 63, 9 through 14. And so the body of Christ is the temple. It is the place of of the presence of God. And so God is in the midst of his people. And so all kinds of things start to to grow out of that that are really, really important. 
So let's look at a couple of passages that I think where Paul takes us from the theological to the practical, if you will. So in 1 Corinthians 3, that passage, we've noted that a couple of times. We've looked at verse 16, but it's what follows is really interesting. He says in verse 16, do you not know that you're a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Why does he start talking about destroying the temple of God? What does he mean? Well, he had talked to them about being fleshly. And he said there was jealousy and strife among them in verse three of the same chapter. And then he comes along and he says, look, you and the people with you are the temple of God. And when you treat one another with jealousy and strife, you're tearing up God's temple. Stop it. There's not anything more practical than that. Mm -hmm. And so recognizing our identity as the temple of God has a direct impact on how we treat one another. And basically what Paul's saying is, look, don't be a Babylonian. Don't go through the temple, you know, hacking the gold off the walls and tearing things up and saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to get what I came for and then I'm going to leave and I'm going to, I'm going to carry it off and take it home. People do that all the time. They come yeah. and they say, well, I didn't get anything out of this. Well, I'm sorry. You're not here to be a Babylonian. You're here to be a priest. You're here to serve, <laughs> not be served. Those are different things. They're mm -hmm. radically different things. Yeah. And so understanding our identity as the temple of God is really critical. So in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says there in verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. So another thing that happens is, particularly Americans, Westerners say, well, what I do in private, that doesn't affect anybody else. It's none of your business. And, it, it, you know, it, that's on me. That's my private life. And No, if, if you are sitting at home looking at pornography or you're losing your temper at work or whatever it may be, you're defiled by that. And then you come in among the Lord's people and you bring that with you. You bring that uncleanness. The Jews would have had an absolute fit if someone brought something unclean into the temple of God. How much more would they have had a fit if somebody had used unclean building materials to build the temple of God? And yet, when we when we go out and defile ourselves and then come in among the Lord's people, we do tremendous damage. First of all, we're not who we need to be for our brothers and sisters in Christ if we're spending all our time in, in worldly things. We, we have a moral and spiritual obligation to be a people set apart to the purposes of God. That's part of being a part of the temple. Secondly, if we're defiled, that, that's going to have an impact on the people around us. We bring who we are to everything we do. And the temple sort of understanding this and understanding how Paul uses some of this forces us to see these, these truths that really speak to our identity and, and who we need to become in Christ. 
And so, you know, we kind of think, well, that's Old Testament stuff. And that, no, it's, it's eternal stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's eternally important. And there's just, there's so much to chew on here. It's almost like you could do a whole week's worth of lessons and meetings talking about this. Huh? Doesn't that sound right? Hey, that, sounds, that sounds like a good idea. Trying to shove it into 45 to 60 minutes. But Sid, we really appreciate you talking about this theme and especially drawing out those important applications and to not be like, okay, I'm going to open up my Bible to Ezekiel 40 and I'm immediately going to shut it because it's just a whole bunch of numbers and a whole bunch of random thing. That's there's worth and there's value in seeing what God's word has to say and realizing what it tells us, what it tells us about ourselves. But I think more importantly, that's really going to stick with me about how, what this is telling us about God and, and who he is and how holy he is and just how amazing it is that he wants relationship with us and that we get to have a relationship with him. So some rapid fire questions here at the end, and we kind of like to end with uh, currently, what is your favorite book of the Bible? You know, usually it, it's, Right now it's Romans because I'm teaching Romans. That's a, <laughs> not Romans, but just that that answer is a common answer. Yeah. Whatever I'm doing, right? Yeah. So. Right. And I think that really should be the answer because we ought to be seeing things that are transforming us. Yeah. Uh, and and that's that's important. So is there one thing briefly about Romans you've been appreciating this time around or just something that's continued to stick out to you about it? Well, the the passage that in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26, it, I mean, it's it's six verses. Mm -hmm. And you, you look at that and the righteousness of God, faith, sin, redemption, propitiation, grace. I mean, the only thing, the only really big idea in the Bible he didn't talk about is eschatology. Uh, you know, <laughs> just... There is so much in that brief statement mm -hmm. uh, justification and, and the justice of God that it it just my conviction about Romans is he says what he says in Romans 3 21 through 26 and he spends the rest of the book trying to explain what he meant <laughs> uh, not yeah. not trying you know obviously he does successfully uh, yeah. but mm -hmm. there is so much there. That, yeah. that God has done that we had no part in. He did it all for us. And all you can do when you think about all of, the, all of this is just stand back in awe. Yeah. And so that, that's just, that's kind of Romans concentrated for me. And, and I, I love that. I love that passage. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, but I won't turn this into a, <laughs> I was going to say, we're about to go another 45 minutes and go just in six <laughs> verses instead of instead of nine chapters. Uh, but that's awesome. A similar theme, a similar question here. A favorite, uh, I'll say your favorite, but just maybe a favorite Bible character. If When that question gets thrown out, who comes to your mind? You can't say the Lord. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jonah Dab, the son of Recap. All right. Uh, you want to <laughs> remind us a little bit about I'm, my Jonah Dab knowledge is a little bit rusty, so you'll have to. So in Jeremiah 35, Jeremiah brings the Rechabites into the temple and he says, drink wine. And they say, well, we don't drink wine. And we don't live in cities and we don't we don't plant crops because our father Jonadab 
told us not to. Well, that was 240 years early. Here, here was a man who identified what at least he perceived to be threats. And all of those things were potentially tied to idolatry in one way or another. But he identified threats in the culture, and he, he trained his family to stay away from that. And five or six generations later, they're still doing it. The whole point of that, the point that God is making is the Rechabites listen to Jonadab, and you don't listen to me. And so they know what faithfulness is, uh, uh, unlike the Israelites. But I mentioned earlier that the Rechabites and the Zedekites are probably the only two families that have that generational. I guess what I see in, in Zadok and what I see in Jonadab is that it can be done. Uh, and that's by regular people. And that's tremendously, tremendously encouraging. I'd like to spend another 45 minutes talking about the Rechabites. <laughs> we keep getting you hyped up on stuff and then having to cut you off on some of those things. But again, wetting the appetite for our audience to check some of these things out for themselves too. If someone was asking you, or maybe you've heard this phrase of someone's talking about trying to go deeper in their Bible study. I'm looking for deeper Bible study. What does deeper Bible study mean to you, Sid? Okay. I, I I've thought about this some, and I think we have a picture of deep Bible study where, you know, you're, you're at a desk and you've got lexicons and commentaries piled everywhere, and you're really trying to bear down and analyze the text at a molecular level. And I'm not knocking any of that because that has real value. But I think about the goal of all this from God's perspective. And, and the goal is that you and I become conformed to the image of Christ at the end of the day. And so I think about people who perform at a high level in anything, whatever it may be, whether it's football or baseball or soccer or Grand Prix motorcycle racing, they got there because they did the prep work. And it, it goes back to something we talked about at the very beginning. You know, I heard for years and years and years, don't read study. That is well-intentioned, terrible advice. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm not saying the opposite. I'm not saying don't study, read. What I'm saying is read before you study. Because the best thing we can do to do deep Bible study is bring a thorough knowledge of God's word to bear on the text at hand. And we're going to do a, a better and deeper job of understanding any given text if we know to the best of our ability the rest of what God has said. And mm -hmm. we see it not just in its immediate context, but in its broader literary and historical context. And then we go out and apply it. And that that's really key because you know you can study all you want about loving your enemy. But you don't really get that until you respond graciously when your boss is screaming in your face. And, and that may be the moment of realization. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think deep Bible study is a methodology. Let me say you, a bad methodology will ruin deep Bible study, right? If you're just <laughs> yeah, taking yeah. things out of context and, and, and all that. But if you seriously want to become like Christ, and you strive to understand everything that God has said, then the light bulb moments may come 
when you're sitting down with your Bible, but they may come in a moment of crisis when the reality of what you've studied becomes very, very real. And you have to you have to fall back. And, and that may be when you say, OK, now I understand it may come in a moment of betrayal. It may come in a moment of of suffering. It may come in a moment of pain. It may come in a moment of blessing, although we're we seem to be less insightful in moments of blessing than we are in moments of suffering. There's so much there <laughs> we could we could unpack more there. But yes. here's here's one last question for you. I know you're a motorcycle guy. Would you rather ride a Harley or a Honda? Well, yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you have it. (laughs) Why in the world would I offend half the audience? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny. I was reading a little bit of the um, history behind Harley and, and Honda, and their history is pretty intertwined. I didn't realize that. But another thing I didn't realize is that Harley Davidson's early in their history, they used to be used by mailmen and police officers. Sure. <laughs> it's just interesting how the image has changed over, over the years. <laughs> yeah, one of their early motorcycles was called the Silent Gray Fellow. <laughs> there you go. Interesting. Because it was a very quiet, refined motorcycle. And that's yeah, what people I- think about when they think Harley Davidson. They think quiet and refinement. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. That's what I think. Every time I see one go by me in my minivan, I think there's a life of quiet and refinement compared to me in my rambunctious minivan. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, Sid, thank you so much for being with us today, helping us unpack a lot of things, helping us to, to think about a lot of things. It's, it's been a wonderful conversation today. Well, I appreciate it so much and I hope it's useful. I, I know it is. I, I feel bad for Emerson, who I think is editing this episode because he's got to pick which words of wisdom gets to be the nine second clip at the beginning, because I think that there's value in all of this today. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Sid. Well, thank you, guys. Appreciate what you're doing. God bless. Lord bless you. So, Emerson, what was your one thing from our conversation with Sid? I think the thing that I'm going to take away is just how applicable the theme of the temple is. You know, in Ezekiel, these chapters, uh, I never really thought about how many applications come from thinking about who God is. And one of the ones that is going to stick with me is understanding that God is not one of us. We can't bring God down to our level. He is holy and he is above us. And that doesn't take away from other places in the Bible that talk about God as our friend, but it does help us understand that that there's a separation between us and God that cannot be resolved without the blood of Jesus. And so the temple theme really highlights that and how great God is. And that really has a huge impact on how we view God and how we live for God and how we worship and respect God. So I think just the temple and how it portrays God as being magnificent and awesome and awe-inspiring is the thing that I'll take away. What about for you? I think my thing is how he talked about the fact that if we're really going to understand these themes, it's important to have a couple of those cover-to-cover kind of readings. And just 
mm-hmm. as we're going to be talking about in our final four with it kind of being a different approach as it's kind of different from the inductive study method that's different from you know, reading the bible in a year or whatever there's there's all types of ways we need to engage god's word in big chunks and small chunks but to really give these themes the proper attention or to really flesh them out in a good way it needs to kind of build upon the foundation of having some of that flyover view knowledge okay this is you know the the idea of a temple being where god's presence dwells and seeing that in like the garden and seeing that in revelation seeing that not just in first kings 8 or anything like that but throughout scripture and the places that it shows up and that language will be shown up. And so it's just a reminder for me to, to vary my reading at times and to, to continue to remember to not just get locked into one thing. Yeah. So as always, we want to leave you, our listeners with the same question as our challenge. What one thing will you take away from our conversation about God's temple with Sid? Thank you for tuning into Working With The Word today. Our next episode that we'll release will be the beginning of our Final Four series for this year as we talk about devotional Bible reading with a varied number of guests. We're looking forward to those conversations and releasing those for all of you to find some encouragement in there as well. If you'd like to find us and reach out to us here at Working With The Word, you can find us on Facebook at Working With The Word. You can find us on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word working with the word podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. This is going to be seven minutes long, and six minutes of it's going to be me just not knowing how to talk.